Well, hey, everybody. Good to be back with you tonight. Hello, hello. Yes. And the soundboard is unoccupied. <laughs> um, I'm excited for uh, tonight in this passage we're looking at because it's the first blatant time that what you're doing in your seminars and what we're doing tonight, like, perfectly crisscross. I know um, David's seminar has had a lot of overlap. John's seminar on leadership has had a lot of overlap uh, with what we're doing in here. But uh, tonight it's a passage about leadership. It's a passage about uh, what it looks like and what it means to um, lead other people in God's church. And so uh, I'm excited to hear what conversations come out of this. Um, also, uh, we need to give God thanks. He is, um, he is so in favor of your joy and your maturation and your growth and uh, your security in the gospel. And it's been really fun talking to some of you during meals or just passing you on the sidewalk or something, hearing about uh, ways God has uh, gotten past the noise to you. Um, uh, give him the thanks for that. That's his heart uh, being expressed towards you, that uh, he is generous. He is never opposed to holding me. He's not stingy. Uh, with his word, he's not stingy. With his love, he's not stingy. Uh, with his grace, he lavishes on us. So um, we expect that to happen again tonight. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn it to uh, back to 1 Peter. This is our last time in 1 Peter this week. Tomorrow we'll be in Revelation. But this is from 1 Peter chapter 5, and this is how Peter is wrapping up his time with his people. Uh, just like uh, we've had time together this week, and there's been important things I wanted to emphasize with you and other speakers have. Uh, Peter had certain things he wanted to emphasize with these people, and this is where he ends his message, or ends his letter, uh, to the Christians in exile living in Turkey. At that time, this is what he says. First Peter 5, 1 through 11, Peter says, So I exhort the elders, or I encourage the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, <coughs> shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, elders and those subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you call yourself good shepherd. You say that you are the great shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. You're not the hired hand who, who works a nine to five and when he's paid to pay attention to the sheep, he does 
but as soon as he's off the clock, he's off to his other life. Your life is your sheep. Your ministry was for your sheep. So we thank you that you are the good shepherd, the superior shepherd, the unmatched shepherd for us. We pray that we would hear that tonight, hear the ways that you shepherd us. You don't delegate that, but also hear the ways you use us and the shepherds above us to love you, to grow in you more. We pray that tonight. Amen. Well, back in the day, probably 1500s in England, the Puritans were a group of Christians that were around. And the Puritan pastors, um, a lot of parts of the way they did ministry to their people were the way you experience in your church today. But some things about the ways that they took care of their people were really different. One big way that their ministry was different than any way that you've had a relationship with a pastor uh, today probably is that they would do house visits. The bulk of a guy's week was spent going door to door of the people in his congregation or his town or his parish. And he would just work through the roster, go house to house, and he'd do all kinds of stuff while he was there. Um, a lot of times they would, they would do what's called catechizing the kids. It just basically means teaching them the basics of the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, he would pray for them. He would ask how the church could help them. If they had physical needs they needed help with, he would connect them with resources. Um, when they were sick, he would come, anoint them with oil, or if there's a shut-in, he would come with some of the elders in the church and, and serve the Lord's Supper to them. But one of, the, one of the things that that pastor was always there to do when the time came for someone in a household of one of his people uh, when they reached their deathbed and they're dying, and back in the day that was a very slow process, days or weeks maybe, that pastor was right there with them hand in hand. He was neck deep in that kind of stuff. It wasn't a quick visit to the hospital and then he's back to his house, but he was all there, holding their hand as they died, praying with them, being with the family, weeping with them, preparing them to meet the Lord. And one of these Puritan pastors was was really undone by that and undone in a bad way like unsettled by it bothered by it and not because the death part if you live in the 1600s death is all around you um, he wasn't un he wasn't unnerved by that and he had a lot of experience with that he did it all the time when when people would pass away he was there that's not what unsettled him what bothered him and unsettled him is he said how poorly my people die and what he meant by that, he, he extrapolated in his journal, he said, I've seen too many Christians dying on their deathbeds with panic in their eyes. He said, I've, I've heard too many hopeless conversations around the deathbed. And he said, I've seen too many people stubbornly unwilling to relinquish a life God is clearly taking. And it, it unnerved him, it bothered him. It agonized him to see his people dying so poorly, so frantically, with such panic and fear. And so he resolved that day, he said, if my people are going to start dying well, I'm going to have to start teaching them to die every day. I'm going to have to start teaching them, and we're going to have to start practicing laying down our lives every single day. That way, his thinking went... If a person has already practiced dying a thousand times before their deathbed, they're, they're more ready for it, right? In theory, if they've already practiced day by day laying down their life, relinquishing control over their lives, submitting themselves to God's sovereignty, 
placing their hope in the resurrection, not in the things of this world. If you've done that a thousand times before, by the time it game day comes, yeah, there's some big emotions there. Yes, it's, it's, it's unknown in a lot of ways, but you're more prepared, right? So he said, if my people are going to die well, I have to prepare them to die every day. They're going to have to learn to die every day. I was thinking about this, and my mind immediately went to this question. Have you ever considered how well your Redeemer died on that Good Friday? If you're like me, when we're going through the Easter narratives and all the, all the Holy Week and everything, my focus is on that he died, right? We usually focus on that. The Lord gave up his life. I haven't given much attention to how he died, particularly how well he died. He was 33 when he died. I'm 36, three years younger than me. How does a 33-year-old die well? Especially when, uh, in, a, in a large sense, it certainly wasn't unexpected to Jesus or the Father, but in a, in a sense, an unexpected curveball of a death, a state execution, unjust. And by 33 years old, Jesus dies well. How did that happen? It's the same thing this pastor was dealing with. He died well because he'd already died 10,000 times before. His life, every conscious waking day of his life was a laying down of his life, a relinquishing of his life to the Father's will and to his brothers and sisters, you and me. Every day was a day of death. I don't know if anything... Actually, I do. Nothing could prepare you for the unimaginable that Jesus walked into in the garden, after the garden, and on the cross. Nothing can prepare you for that. But as prepared as a person could be for that, Jesus was. When you, when you reread the, the story about the upper room in the Last Supper, or Jesus telling Peter to put away his sword, or Jesus taking it as they're whipping him and mocking him, and him remaining silent, not returning evil for evil on the cross, you see how instinctual it was for him to die. He was a veteran at it. He was old hat at giving himself away. This was not amateur hour. This was the expert dying for us and showing us how to die. I was at a meeting pretty recently with a bunch of pastors and I cannot for the life of me remember this guy's name or else I would quote him because this is his story, not mine. He was preaching, he had to preach on uh, the, the Last Supper. And he said this, I wrote it down because I knew I'd need to remember it and want to. It was amazing. He said, at Jesus' Last Supper, on perhaps one of the most demanding and intimidating nights of his life, his attention was not chiefly drawn to himself and what he would face. His attention was on his disciples and what they would face. On the most intimidating, demanding, perhaps costly nights of his life where his fate was sealed in a sense. Jesus' attention was not on himself and what he would face, but on his disciples and what we would face. This guy went on to compare Jesus' last supper with the last suppers that you and I hear about in the news frequently and I don't know if you live in a state um, where there's capital punishment. I've, uh, ben, you're from Wyoming. Wyoming is just like brutal in their capital punishment. They're like, let's crush you with rocks or something. Like, I grew up in Georgia, and in Georgia, um, the, all the time I'd hear stories on the news whenever an inmate 
would be put to death in the electric chair or lethal injection. All of the news stations would cover it. It was somewhat infrequent. And the beginning of their story was always the warden would be there at a press conference, and the first thing he read was what that prisoner requested for his last supper. And it was uh, just ridiculous stuff. It was steak and ribs and pizza and macaroni and cheese and ice cream, like and candy and chocolate cake. And all the news, news reporters would dutifully report that on the 11 o'clock news, what the prisoner requested for his last supper. This uh, pastor who was preaching went on to compare Jesus' last supper with, this, with these inmates' last suppers. And he says, with Jesus' last supper, it was just the opposite. At his last meal, he did not hoard, he gave. Compare the two. <coughs> in our last suppers, in the inmates' last suppers, their attention is obsessively on themselves. <coughs> our attention is obsessively on them. And in Jesus' Last Supper, there is no press release of what he requested for his last meal, of all of his favorites, of all of his luxuries, of all the things he always wanted to have that he didn't. Again, where was his attention? Not on himself, but on his people. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Drink of it. Why open a passage like what we just read in 1 Peter with a story like that? Because... What Peter has been doing in chapter, actually the whole letter, but especially in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, is he is saying that for the Christian, for everybody in the room right now, your life, because you've been united to Jesus, you're a Siamese twin with him in a sense. What's true of him is now true of you. Okay, You share his inheritance now. It also means what his, the pattern of his life, the shape of his life, will now be, not should be, not might be, will be, the pattern of your life. And his pattern was suffering and then glory. The pattern of his life was laying down his life for his brothers. And then he was exalted. It was humiliation and humility and then exaltation. There is no way to repattern your life if you're united to Jesus. The die is cast. You have crossed the Rubicon. There is no going back. You are being pressed into his image, pressed into his mold, which means your life, when you're, let's say you live to be 80 years old, you'll look back and someone will say, what thoughts do you have about your life? You will say, mine was a life of suffering and then glory, a cross before a crown, humiliation before exaltation, weakness before strength. That will be your story if you're a Christian. That's why I open with talking about Jesus and his, this pattern of laying down his life because Peter's making a point here with leadership and elders in the church and he's saying leadership takes on the pattern of Jesus' leadership too. For shepherds and elders in the church, he says that any shepherd, any elder, any pastor that you have, Peter in scripture calls him an under pastor or an under shepherd. So there is Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, and then there's people like me or something, like ordained pastors who are under shepherds, okay? And he's saying that, hey, doesn't it make sense that the lives of the under shepherds should, to a degree, mirror and reflect the great shepherd? Wouldn't it be weird if there was a complete discontinuity between the two? If they were set on two different, I should say this, this is better, if they were set on two different trajectories, 
Because I'm not going to stand up here and say my life looks like Jesus' life. But is my, has God set the trajectory of my life in a similar trajectory of Jesus' life? Yes, he has, and he's done that for you too. We are heading in the same direction his life headed, and we just talked about that. Suffering before glory, cross before a crown, weakness before strength. Laying down your life is that pattern. That's what Jesus is saying all of us are being pulled to, especially when you step into the front row of leadership. No, those are super big shoes to fill, right? I mean, they're like the Messiah shoes to fill, and no one can be the Messiah, and no one can be the Holy Spirit, right? So what's Peter talking about here? I, there's a re- very real sense in which he is saying not... He is saying your li- our lives will take on this pattern, but he's also saying our lives should take on this pattern. He's saying don't play tug-of-war. It'll only hurt you and it'll especially hurt other people. He's saying yield ourselves to the tug, to the pull, to this pattern. It's inevitable. Don't fight gravity, I guess is what he's saying. You'll get really tired. And you won't be available to love other people. Let gravity take you. Let it pull you towards conformity to Christ, towards this pattern. And what that looks like in our practical lives, you say, okay, that's all metaphorical, great illustration, but what does that mean for me? It means dying. It means denying yourself. It means relinquishing your control. It means giving your life away. I think that's how we experience this being pulled into Jesus' pattern. It's dying. And there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which, a real sense in which, ministry and in which leadership will kill you. I didn't say it would kill you literally. I said it did for Jesus. There's a sense in which, figuratively, ministry and leadership will demand of you your life. <coughs> there was a pastor in um, Lookout Mountain. He's a somewhat of a, a legend for great reasons. Uh, <coughs> In, in our denomination, uh, Joe Novenson. He's, a, he's been a pa- longtime pastor on Lookout Mountain, Georgia, uh, where Covenant College is. And um, he was in charge, he was kind of in charge of communicating the news uh, to a new church planner. They'd had this search committee, they had chosen a church planner because his church wanted to plan a new work in downtown Chattanooga. And it was Joe's job to call the, the applicant who had applied for that job and, and inform him that, you know, we've looked through all these candidates, we've prayed about it, you're our guy, we're the one you're, we're going to go with, we think God's calling to plant this church. So Joe calls the guy up, and I'm hearing this story from the recipient of Joe's call, the church planner. And he said, Joe calls me up and we small talk, and then Joe says, well, let's get to business, this is why I called, I have a question for you. He said, will you come and die with me for this city? And there was just silence. He didn't say, let me explain what I mean by that. You're our guy. Yes. You want the job? He just left the question hang. Will you come and die with me for Chattanooga, for Lookout Mountain? This church planner said that one question perfectly reoriented him to what he was about to step into. His own death. This total laying down of his own life for the sake of others in the pattern of Jesus. It perfectly reoriented him. Because I'm sure Chattanooga is a lovely place to live. You can ask Scott and other people here. I'm sure it's got great perks about it. It's a fun little hipster town in the downtown parts. I'm sure this guy was looking forward to that kind of stuff. Joe didn't say, do you want to come live in Chattanooga? Joe said, will you come and die? Because ministry and leadership will demand of you everything. 
That's what it means to shepherd the flock of God. And I think what it means ideally, we'll talk about this in a minute, ideally, to be an elder in the household of God. Now, listen, except for the borders of this room, I get that none of you are ordained elders. No one has laid hands on you. You haven't been examined theologically, and they haven't commissioned you as an elder in Christ's church. There are people around the edges we'll talk about in a minute who are pastors, who are elders, or who have uh, less formal roles of leadership where they mentor you, they guide you, they lead you, but you, this is YXL. You're not just here because you wanted to come here. It doesn't work that way. You have, a, you, you, you have a clear desire for leadership in some capacity or else you're at the wrong conference. I don't know why you would have signed up for this. But there's also other people around you, people at your church, parents, maybe mentors who encouraged you, nudged you toward this, or were happy about it when you said you were coming. And so you need to hear this passage, and even though Peter's using words like elder, you need to hear it directed at you because the shape of what Peter's talking about applies to you. It applies to you, leaders. The kind of leaders that God envisions taking care of his people, the kind of leaders he envisions in his church are shepherd leaders. This is how Peter describes it to get back to the passage. Peter calls these people, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he's, he's using this metaphor of a shepherd which goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God says, I am my shepherd of my people Israel. I'll lead you like a shepherd through the wilderness. Peter says, leaders... In the church, leaders of his people are shepherds. Now, some things you know about shepherds, some things you might not have thought about with shepherds. The things you might know about shepherds is shepherds feed their sheep, shepherds protect their sheep, shepherds live with their sheep. I said in the prayer earlier, shepherds are different. Jesus makes a comparison between a shepherd and a hired hand. A hired hand clocks in and clocks out. A shepherd, that's his life or her life. That's, they live with the sheep. They know the sheep. They smell like the sheep. They walk with the sheep. The sheep suffer. They suffer. The sheep are doing great that week. They're doing great that week. There's a continuity between their lives. But here's what that means in everyday on the ground life and ministry. To lead like a shepherd means you run interference for the people that you're leading. Which means you take the bullets so they don't have to. It means you stand in between them and threats. Peter says to exercise oversight, like a lifeguard overseeing a pool, making sure that no one drowns. Leaders concern themselves with the problems of other people. These kind of leaders, shepherd leaders, don't see somebody in danger and say, man, they, what an idiot. Why would they do that? What were they thinking? Leaders jump in the water. And their problem, their threat, their danger is now your threat, your problem, and your danger because you're in the water with them going after them. Peter calls shepherds in the household of God, shepherds patterned after Jesus. When there is danger, you jump in and you go for that person, even though it means putting yourself in danger. <coughs> Practically, this is harder than it might sound because... Have you had times in your life yet where you have had to go after a straying friend? Or where you have uh, wondered, do I send another text? Do I make another phone call? Do I invite them to youth group again because they clearly don't want to be there and I think I'm really annoying them at this point and I don't want to like turn them off to this stuff. But have you been at a place like that with one of your friends? 
where you're wondering that? That's what it means to oversee. That, that's, what, that's the lifeguard mentality. And it's harder. It's hard to sit across the table from someone you know is, is, uh, is pissed that you call them up and want to talk to them about this thing again. This is sacrificial. This requires of you your life. Peter says elders, shepherds, are not to serve under compulsion, but willingly. Which means there's a big difference. There's a, there's a culture that's, oh shoot, we need someone to teach, like third grade Sunday school, we don't have any volunteers. Who's a warm body who can do that? And someone says grudgingly, well, I had all this other stuff going on, but I guess I'll do it. Jesus doesn't want people like that leading you. He doesn't want shepherds like that shepherding you. People who have to be pricked and arm twisted into loving you. Jesus is raising up people to lead you who when they hear there are sheep without a shepherd, they're pricked in their heart and they say, I'll go. Or he compels them and he draws them and they go. Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, which means there can't be an attitude in leadership or it's got to be crucified if there's an attitude <coughs> in leadership of what's in this for me? What do I get out of this? This bargaining and negotiating on the front end, like, okay, I, I know what you want me to do, but like, what's the payoff? What do I get back here? Peter says the question in shepherd leadership is what's in it for them? What gifts, talk to me about what gifts and what experiences I have that could be useful to the sheep. Talk to me about the ways I could alleviate burdens or maybe God has prepared me or equipped me to do it. What's in it for them? What do they get out of it? Peter says not domineering over those in charge but examples to them, which means as John has been saying in the leadership seminar repeatedly, Leadership's not a position and it's not a status you attain. Leadership is a posture of life. Shepherd leadership is a posture of life. It's not very often uh, that a guy like me quotes Pope Francis. Cullen, there might be a cardiac arrest in a moment, so be on guard, Billy, or someone else. I'm about to quote Pope Francis. Just prepare yourself. This was early on when he became Pope. He had a room, like a big old gigantic room full of priests, his priests, and he was uh, basically giving them a speech of what he wanted them to be, and he said this. He said, when a priest, or we, we're using the word shepherd, when a shepherd doesn't put his own skin and his own heart on the line, he never hears a warm, heartfelt word of thanks from those he has helped. This is precisely the reason why some Catholic priests, he says, go grow dissatisfied, cold-hearted, and become, in a sense, old collectors of antiquities and novelties instead of being shepherds living with the smell of the sheep. He looks up from his paper and he looks at these priests in the eyes and he says, this is what I'm asking of you. Be shepherds who smell like your sheep. Which is to say this, true shepherds are those who smell like the sheep, which means they're with the sheep. They're in the trenches with the sheep. They live life with the sheep which at the same time humbles the shepherds because they bleed like you, they doubt like you, they question like you, they struggle like you, they're weak like you, but they're with you, and they're for you. They smell like you. They're not in some untouchable, pristine, priestly class where you have to be careful how you describe your struggle because they might blush. The kind of shepherds that Jesus desires for you and gives to you are these kind of people. So let's shift into what do we do with this. 
and what's the complication here because this sounds great and the million dollar question is, yeah, if it was this easy, wouldn't we have figured this out 2,000 years ago? How do you get to a place of shepherding and leading the way Peter describes here? Because I think he's serious. Like, Peter doesn't do the whole, I really want you to be this, oh, but you can't because you're sinful, so never mind. He doesn't do that, does he? He commands them. He says, don't domineer. He says, don't lord over your people. He says, don't be compelled by it, but do it eagerly. Peter expects a result here. He assumes a response. He doesn't cop out and say, well, you can't, so forget everything I said. How do you get there? The short answer is the gospel of grace has to lead you into gospel leadership. The gospel has to lead you into gospel leadership, and that's what we've been talking about. Why does this have to be the way it is? Why can't you just trust, hear me, because this is a room full of gifted people with fun personalities. I've been around you long enough to pick that up. There is a massive temptation to trust your personality and your gifts and your learning and your experience and to say, in this conference, and to say, man, I'm equipped. I took these personality inventories. We did this training. I learned all these new insights about myself. I'm ready to roll. No, you're not. That has never been merely what equips leaders in Christ's church. Otherwise, we'd have a lot more leaders in Christ's church because we'd have assembly lines of just pumping out people with this kind of a training. Why is it so hard to grasp this stuff? Why is it so complicated to move towards a place of leading like this? Because our hearts are so warped. These are some things that um, get in between us and leading well, me and leading well. I'll share some of these for myself. We have a mentality of, instead of all the stuff we've been talking about, laying down our lives, we have a mentality of status. Man, they asked me to pray before dinner tonight. Or that guy asked me to lead the small group. I'm the guy who gets, like everyone's going to come in the room and I'm going to be the guy who has a role here. Or I'm going to be the girl who got to pray up front and so people know me now. Like there's a little bit of, there's a, little bit of a thrill. Because you're like, I got the microphone. Or we have hearts that are pretty indifferent towards those that we tried to lead, but after about 30 minutes, it didn't work. I've told that girl 10 times how to fix that problem, and she doesn't listen to me, so forget it. She can handle it. Woo! I got a few of you woken back up there. You're like, wet your pants a little bit. Hello, welcome back. We wash our hands of people very quickly because they're inconvenient to lead and serve. Or we, we ignore people who are hard to love. We have a very narrow sliver, a narrow, narrow, narrow bandwidth of people that we're willing to get in the trenches with. And they're people that we really enjoy being around. We don't smell like the people who aren't like us. Or we're prone to using power in self-serving ways. I have felt this before. I haven't been a pastor very long, like four years. But I have felt the instinct in my heart to use my authority as a pastor to make a comment like with someone I've been doing ministry like 11 years in one form or another on the campus and you should be concerned because I've never seen this before. There might be a very narrow, specific context where that comment might be appropriate and helpful to a person, but not in the way I was going to use it. That would have been devastating and hurtful and harmful and manipulative to a person. Do you ever say stuff like that? What do all these things have in common? All the little examples I just gave you and the ones you might be thinking of now. 
ways we use leadership as yet another tool to advance us on the social ladder. They're all self-serving. They're all refusals to die. They're all evidence that we die poorly, just like those people, the, the congregants of the Puritan pastors, that we are not willing to relinquish our lives because they're precious to us. You remember what Jesus said? If you cling on to your life with white knuckles, you will lose it. But if you lay down your life for my sake in the gospel, then you will find it. Try to preserve your life, and you will lose your life. Give away your life for Christ's sake, and then you will find your life. Why does Peter talk about this weird stuff about the devil right in the middle of all this other stuff? Sometimes it sounds like Peter just drops out a random comment, and you're like, wait, what? I thought we were talking about leadership. What's this about the devil prowling around? I think this is why. The, the way the devil prowls around and tries to get one gazelle off the pack to eat it isn't just like persecution, social pressure, all the other stuff we've been talking about. It's that, but I think it's more too. And maybe the way that we get hit by the devil's prowling around in his temptation is when he whispers in our ears, save yourself. Get out while you can. You're overcommitted. That person's too difficult. I think that's the devil's standard go-to temptation especially with leaders. It is self-preservation. It is self-advancement. He got Adam with it. He got Eve with it. He tried to get Jesus with it in the wilderness. All these kingdoms could be yours, and my way doesn't involve a cross like your father's way. Why suffer and be hungry? Eat these rocks, turn them to bread. <coughs> It doesn't have to be hard for you. The devil's go-to standard temptation with us is self-preservation, self-advancement, always at the expense of other people. He tempts us by turning our attention to ourselves, overinflating our pride. That's what he does. Listen to some of the ways in Ezekiel 34. Um, this is easy to read. It's in our language, so I'm going to read a, a about eight verses of it. But this is Ezekiel 34. This is God taking issue with Israel's shepherds for shepherding the way we've just been talking about. Starting in verse 2 in Ezekiel 34, he says, Son of man, Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Tell them, even to the shepherds, I say this, thus says the Lord, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed my sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled my sheep. And so they were scattered. Duh. With leaders like that. And so they were scattered. Because there was no one to shepherd them. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with no one to search for them or seek them out. This is God's indictment of the shepherds of Israel who had far more interest in lining their own pockets and their own comfort and their own ease and their own schedules and their own convenience than being bothered to love another person or give their lives for another person. And God noticed, and he was angry. 
how do we avoid this kind of stuff? Back to what we said earlier. Peter assumes there's an ability to change and grow here because Peter doesn't cop out at the end and say, just kidding, you can't do any of this stuff. Peter gives us imperatives, he gives us commands, and he says this. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I think here's how we can hear this in a, in a conversational way. Don't take yourself seriously. But take God's kingdom very seriously. <coughs> Don't take yourself very seriously. But take his kingdom very seriously. Have humility towards one another. We don't puff out our chest. We're not in a competition. It doesn't kill us when a brother or a sister receives a compliment or praise or attention or encouragement for a way they blessed someone else, but no one noticed with us. We get to celebrate those moments. When you hear me, when you hear Peter say, clothe yourself with humility, do you remember two nights ago? Do you hear that as you have to be humble? Or do you hear that as, you get to be humble, you're a butterfly. Fly around. You've got wings. Flap them. They're going to feel kind of weird and awkward and clumsy and gigantic at first, but you're going to get the hang of it. And it's not about your performance. It's about your potential. It's about the opportunity. You get to be humble now. You're not a slave to pride, Christian. And so we get to repent our way towards this vision. We get to yield ourselves to the gravity of being pulled into the pattern of Jesus and his leadership. And we get to hate pride. I want to talk about pride before we end, because this is weird. I never expected to see this in the passage, and except for today. I've never even thought about it before, or never connected these two weird things together. Imagine you're nine feet tall. What would life be like for you? You would hit a lot of door frames. You wouldn't fit in cars. You wouldn't be able to find clothes that fit you. You wouldn't be able to sleep in beds. You would be freakishly huge. Everyone would turn and look at you. You would stand out in the most uncomfortable way. Why? Because the world wasn't made for nine-foot-tall people. You're too big. If a doctor came to you and said, we have developed a pill therapy, a pill regimen that you can take, and in two months, you'll be shrunk back down to the size of all your friends, you'd take the pill. Because you would, it's not shrinking you down to some harmful size where you're going to be the weird little one walking around. It would shrink you back to the size you're supposed to be. Humility shrinks you back to the size you're supposed to be. Pride overinflates you to be the nine-foot-tall person walking around life for a world that's not made for proud people. God says, I oppose the proud. I'm not going to adjust my creation and my world to accommodate nine-foot-tall people. But he says, I am more than happy to shrink you. And when you hear that, don't, don't think shrink you down to some, in some <coughs> unsustainable... I'm willing to shrink you back to the size I made you to be. Humility is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful opportunity for us. Pride is overinflation. It's what the devil appeals to. Self-preservation. <coughs> Self-advancement. 
What are some of the symptoms of being proud? Well, in ministry, we already talked about it. It's being domineering over other people, lording your power and your opportunities over them as leverage. It's being, uh, it's being harsh towards them like the, like the shepherds of Israel. But at a personal level, and this is what caught me off guard. Never thought about this before. Do you know what one of the chief symptoms of pride is? Anxiety. What's the connection? How is anxiety connected to pride? It is not a non sequitur when Peter, after talking about all this stuff, starts talking about the devil and then starts talking about casting your anxieties, all of your anxieties on the Lord. It's right after he talks about humble yourself, clothe yourself with humility, humble yourselves before one another. Humble, 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 cast your anxieties on the Lord. Why? Repenting of pride involves casting your anxieties on the Lord. Peter is describing, I think, what it looks like to repent of pride. It means you begin to take your anxieties to God. So what's the connection between pride and anxiety? Pride is a posture where it's all you. It's an overinflated, not just an overinflated sense of ego, it's an overinflated sense of responsibility. It's an overinflated sense of importance. It's an overinflated sense of your ability to control and manage your life. It's an overinflated sense of your ability to control and manage your little world. Do you ima- can you imagine now how that produces incredible amounts of sleepless nights and anxiety and restlessness when you have to manage your world, when you are in control of everything, when you are responsible for everything, when you have to say yes to everything? Does that make sense now? Anxiety is one of the chief hallmarks of a proud heart, of an orphan heart. So Peter says what it looks like to repent of pride is to turn those anxieties instead of self-managing them and dealing with it with yourself like an orphan, to turn to your father and cast them on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Even in your pride, even in your proudness, even in our overinflation. God doesn't laugh at the nine-foot-tall person. He says, hey, let me shrink you. This is weird. That's what we get to do. We've been talking for a while. Let me throw two or three really quick bullet points at you to set you up for your small group time because I want to be practical here. What are some practical, portable things you can take away from this passage? Number one, you're a sheep. You were made for a shepherd, even the pastors in the room. Every pastor in this room will tell you he has had the thought at one point in his ministry, or many, who shepherds me? I'd give anything to have someone to call me and ask how I'm doing, to tell me what to do in this situation because I don't know what to do. Even pastors need shepherds. You need shepherds. The second practical portable thing to take away from this is some of you have your pastors or your elders or your mentors here. Some of you are going home to them. When you get back into your church, I want you to ask yourself, how do I see these people? As, man, they're my elders and they're my pastor because I grew up here and they've been here ever since and I'm kind of stuck with them. No, 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 no. These are the people Jesus has given you. They are tangible flesh and blood helpers for you. They're to protect you, to teach you, to care for you, to intercede for you, to bear your burdens. Faith for you looks like subjecting yourself to them and going to them and getting to know them and being known by them. Some of you have elders where you will need to go and tell them, will you shepherd me? Some of you have elders who that's their natural instinct and will do it. Lean into these people. Lean into those men. Lean into the mentors the women, the men in your church, your peers who have a shepherding heart who take care of you. And you know 
that you are this to other people as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again as we started that you ultimately say in that passage in Ezekiel 34 that you yourself will shepherd your people. You will heal the wounded. You will bind up the injured. You will seek out the lost. You will feed the hungry. You will give rest to the weary. And that is our only hope because otherwise we would not be able to hope until we perfected the art of shepherding or the people above us perfected it. But we have a shepherd, a great shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. We pray that you would pull us and make us yielded as you pull us into your image and your pattern. Amen.